And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will sing praise to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 146 is one of five psalms known as the Hallelujah Psalms. And they are so described because, as you know, they all begin with the word Hallelujah. Sure, if we're in a Pentecostal church, a preacher would then say, let everybody say Hallelujah. And of course, the word Hallelujah means praise the Lord. It's one of those Hebrew words that... I've come over into the English language and retains the form as it is in Hebrew. Um, hallelujah means praise the Lord. And as to its authorship, the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, attributes Psalm 146 not to David but to Zechariah and Haggai. And by and large, this psalm focuses on the need to trust the Lord as our helper. I would like to re-entitle, retitle this psalm or rather the sermon, as trusting God, our helper, trusting God, our helper. Because by and large, that's what this psalm is all about. And in this regard, verse 5 appears to be the key verse of the psalm. Verse 5 goes as follows, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob for his help, he whose help is the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And it is interesting to note that this is the last of 15 references in the Psalter to one who is deemed blessed or happy. There are 15 references in the Psalter to the blessed individual, and it would make a very interesting study. Just to go through these, among these references are Psalm 1 verse 1, which says that the blessed man is one who leads a separated life and who finds satisfaction in the law of the Lord. Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, which speak of the blessed man as being divinely forgiven. Psalm 33 verse 12, which teaches, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Let the people, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Psalm 34 Verse 8, which identifies the blessed man as the one who takes refuge in the Lord. Psalm 41, verse 1, where the blessed man is characterized as one who is considerate to the poor. We, we could go through these and it would make for a very interesting study. If we're asking the question, who is a truly blessed person? 
And it's worthy of note that the very last reference in the Psalter to the blessed individual should be this particular one which identifies such a person, the blessed person, as one whose help and hope is in the Lord. For especially in a world of instability and what with all the anxiety, the stresses of life in this world as we know it, what greater comfort, what grounds of assurance is there than having the almighty God of heaven as our help and our hope. The psalmist we discover here in the psalm makes several suggestions regarding this matter of trusting the Lord as our help. And there are basically three suggestions, at least three suggestions, the psalmist makes concerning trusting the Lord as our helper. And I'd like to lay down the first. The first is this, that trusting in the Lord promotes a lifestyle of praise. Trusting in the Lord promotes a lifestyle of praise. Look at what he says there, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. We see here that for the psalmist, praising God was his determined lifelong endeavor. His decision to praise God would not be a seasonal activity, but an ever ongoing preoccupation. It would not be an exercise conditioned by circumstances, but one that would be continually practiced as a matter of choice. And the question becomes, as we think of this, what would explain such commitment of the psalmist to continually praise God? To begin with, we notice here, from suggested from this passage, he understands that this is the whole reason for his existence. The reason he can be committed to this lifelong endeavor of praising God is because of his realization that this was the very purpose for which he was created. Because notice, in determining to praise God as long as he lives and to sing praises to God while he is in possession of his being, it's as though he was saying, as far as I am concerned, I live to praise the Lord. My life revolves around this business of magnifying and glorifying God. By way of application, here's a question for us to consider. Do you see the fact that you're alive as compelling reasons, compelling incentive for you to praise the Lord? Here's the point. Our lives, our breath should be ever used to glorify God. Why? Because that was the very purpose for which you and I were created. Now, in the context of this psalm, which, as we said earlier, concerns trusting God as our helper, it appears that the psalmist was also committed to praising God because implied in his statement here in this psalm, his lifelong knowledge and experience of the Lord as his source of help and sustenance was what informed his decision to continually praise God. Indeed, a recurrent phenomenon we'll find throughout the Psalter is this close correlation between trusting God and praising God, suggesting that trusting God promotes praise to God. We see such correlation, for example, in Psalm 42 and verse 11. The psalmist says there, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? And then he says this, hope in God, for I will 
again praising my God and my salvation. Notice there the correlation between trust in God and praising God. Psalm 52 verses 8 and 9. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, he says. How about Psalm 56 verses 3, 4, 10, 11? Here's what he says. Very popular psalm. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Again, the correlation between trusting God and praising God. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6, here's what the psalmist says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And we have to ask the question, how come, how is it that trusting God is related to praising God? We're saying here, suggested by the psalmist here in Psalm 146, is that trusting God promotes a lifestyle of praise to God. And we could answer that by saying this, that praise is a function of trust in God. How so? Because in trusting God, not only do we anticipate his mercies, but we rejoice in him and praise him come what may. That's the nature of true trust in God. True trust in God praises God, rejoices in God, rests in God, regardless of the outcome. We see this in the case of the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you know, was a perplexed prophet. Habakkuk saw his nation being ill-treated by a foreign nation, an ungodly nation, a wicked nation. And Habakkuk had all kinds of questions. And toward the end of the chapter, here's what Habakkuk said. He said this, though the fig tree will not blossom, though there be no herd in the stalls, it's as though he's saying, listen, even though the economy is floundering, even though the economy is failing, even though money is not rustling in my pocket, yet I will rejoice in God, my Savior. Here it was. Why was Habakkuk able to do that? Because of his trust in God. Trust in God, we're saying, promotes a lifestyle of praise to God. We see this in the very case of Job. We see this correlation between trusting God and praising him in the case of Job. In the depths of his suffering, notice Job, we are told, in Job chapter 1, verses 20-21, the Bible says there, He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How in the world could a man do that except because of this that he was trusting in God? Trusting God then promotes a lifestyle of praise, the psalmist suggests. Now, the second thing the psalmist suggests in this psalm, and we're moving along very quickly. The second thing suggested by the psalmist here in Psalm 146 is this. Trusting God prevents disappointment from man. Trusting God promotes a lifestyle of praise, but trusting God prevents disappointment from man. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. Put not your trust in princes... In a son of man in whom there is no salvation, 
When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And what we have in this verse, this verse highlights for us the folly and the vanity of placing one's confidence and trust in human aid. Implied in these verses is that however impressive and influential it may appear, coming even from the highest echelon of society, human help is of no lasting, enduring value. In other words, as powerful as they might be, as talented as they might be, as influential as they might be, kings and princes, prime ministers and presidents, are just what they are. What are they? They are men who, like everyone else, are mortal, men who will someday die, men who will someday be forgotten. The psalmist is saying here, it is folly to trust in man. It is folly to put your trust in princes. It is folly to put your trust in a son of man, in a human being. Why? Because that true and lasting salvation, which is to be found in no one else but the living God, is not in them. And the truth is that just like anyone else, even the wealthiest and most powerful of men, the most powerful of monarchs, the most powerful of presidents, are themselves in need of that salvation which only the living Lord of heaven can supply. It's like what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Indeed, how true the declaration of the word of God, Psalm 60, verse 11, Psalm 108, verse 12, Vain is the salvation of man. Hence the directive in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, here's what the prophet says. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this. He says this, that it, in other words, it's as though he's saying, listen, in light of the fact that the best of men are but men, that they will die like everyone else, that they'll, be, that they'll perish, that they'll soon be forgotten. Here's what Isaiah 2.22 says. He says this, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? I remember preaching some weeks ago, and I wonder where that thought came in my head. And I, I think I said twice. When, the reason why we should not be afraid of preaching the truth is because 100 years, 200 years from now, the bones of those who oppose us are going to be white in the grave. Here it comes. The Bible says, listen, he says they will die. The song we sung earlier talks about the fact that they will die. They will die. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And the wise counsel of Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, here's what the psalmist says there, wise counsel. He says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. The psalmist here admonishes us on how this truth needs to be heard again and again and again, especially in our time. 
How it ought to remind us that in these days our hope and trust cannot be in the Democratic Party. Our hope and trust cannot be in the Republican Party. Our hope and trust cannot be in the Libertarian Party. Is there such a party? I don't know. It sounds familiar. Listen, even the best political leader, even the best president, if we can say there is the best president, he will fail us. Irrespective of their skill at leading and governing, death ultimately what? Overtakes them. Putting an end to all their plans, all their purposes, brilliant as they might be. The psalmist would have us understand in verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. We should not put our trust in leaders because the best of leaders, as somebody else says this, come into power with expiration dates. They come into power with expiration dates. They all return to the earth. They're going to die. So that if we are trusting in man, that will only lead to disappointment and ultimate despair. We cannot trust not even the greatest, most talented, most influential of men. They'll fail us. They'll die. Now the truth is we never trust in man. Here's a sobering truth. To those who would trust in man, to put, those who would put their confidence in political parties, here's the point. We never trust in man, we never trust in political parties without turning from the Lord. Let me say that again. We never trust in man, we never trust wholeheartedly in our political parties without turning from the Lord. Now I'm not just making this up. We never look at to man without leaving off faith and trust in God. And that's the ultimate folly of trusting in man. You say, where did, I, where, did, where did I get that from? In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 7, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of the folly and the futility of relying on man as in this regard. He says, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, here it comes, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes Flesh is strength whose heart, here it comes, turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. What happens when we turn away from the Lord and we trust in man? We're going to wilt. We're going to die spiritually. Here it comes, verse 6. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited, salted land. He then affirms in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And just in case we didn't get it, he says, Whose trust is the Lord. We never trust in man. We never put our confidence in princes without effectively turning from the Lord. The real tragedy, beloved, is this. That I believe that many Christians are more demo- Democrat, are more Republican than they are Christian. And I'm talking specifically about, about this matter of trusting in God. We, 
We must have it settled in our minds. You see that even the most conscientious politician. Listen to me very carefully, and I don't. I'm not just saying. I'm not speaking in a disparaging way. I'm just telling you something that is a fact based on the word of God. The best of intention, the best intention politician, the best intention leader is at best a man with feet of clay and he can disappoint. He can fail. Right? And one of the things about power we need to understand is this. As somebody else says, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The only king there is that we can trust wholeheartedly is the living God of heaven. He never fails. He never disappoints. The psalmist suggests then that trusting God, number one, promotes a lifestyle of praise. Trusting God prevents disappointment from man. Now, finally, here's what the psalmist says. He suggests trusting God produces divine favor and joy. Trusting God produces divine favor and joy. Look at the A and B part, parts of verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So let's unpack this verse. We look first at the word blessed. And the word blessed means to be considered privileged. It means to be called happy. According to one writer, the word carries the idea of enjoying satisfaction and fulfillment. It carries the idea of living the best way possible and the way that God designed us to live. That's the blessed life. And inherent in this word, blessed, is the idea of prosperity, of happiness. And when we talk about prosperity in the biblical context, we're not talking necessarily about material prosperity. In fact, the Bible on this side, heaven, particularly in this new age, the age of the new covenant, the emphasis is not on material prosperity. It is not on physical material prosperity. That is why if we're listening to preachers who promise that if we're serving God, we're going to be happy, we're going to be healthy, our families are going to be fine, sickness will not know, that will lead to disillusionment. It's not necessarily physical material prosperity. The kind of happiness that's spoken of here is not the kind of happy-go-lucky emotionalism. In the context of this psalm, this blessedness the psalm speaks of relates to that true and enduring fulfillment which only God alone can give. It is more spiritual. It has depth. It is that joy, that fulfillment, that, if you want to call it happiness, that comes from the living God. It is that condition of divine favor into which one comes on account of which one is deemed truly privileged. Such is the status of those, the psalmist says, who have come to trust and hope in God. Now the Hebrew word that's used here for help in verse 5 conveys the notion of protection. And time and time again, we see in the word of God that God is portrayed as the helper of his people. 
God helps his people. We know this in the Old Testament. We see him helping them in battle so much so that after Israel had roundly defeated the Philistines, Samuel, we are told in 1 Samuel 7 verse 14, he erected an altar, he pitched a stone, and he called it Ebenezer, the Lord, hitherto as the Lord helped us. God is a God who helps his people by strengthening them in their despondency. We notice, for example, in Isaiah 41, 10, 13, and 14, to a weary, despondent Israel, God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke as follows. He says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In varied capacities, God comes to his people as a helper. You're going through discouragement, he still continues to do that today through the blessed Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He comes alongside us, he ministers to us. Now you notice, this God, who has been the helper of Israel, the psalmist describes this God as the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. And this expression, the God of Jacob, with its synonym, the mighty one of Jacob, we find recurs again and again in Scripture. And it's interesting to note, this is very interesting to note. I actually looked this up yesterday. We read in Scripture of the God of Isaac, and that's mentioned eight times. The God of Isaac, eight times. The God of Abraham, 17 times. The God of Elijah, one time. Now, these were great men of God. These were patriarchs, prophets. Now, as many, listen, as many as 25 times, as many as 25 times you read of the God of Jacob. Twice we read of the mighty one of Jacob. 13 of those references to God being the God of Jacob is found here in the Psalter. Now if I didn't give you these numbers, listen to me carefully now. If I did not give you these numbers, and I were to ask you which of these expressions had the greatest hits, the greatest number in the word of God and in the Psalms, very likely, you would have said Abraham. And reasonably so. Why? Because Abraham was reputedly the friend of God. Abraham was the father of faith. Abraham was a great man of faith. The last person we would think of is Jacob. Jacob. And why is that so? You see, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, you'll recall, manipulated his brother Esau into having him sell him his birthright. And in cahoots with his mother, you remember how that he deceived his father. He deceived his father as to his identity so as to inherit Esau's blessing. Jacob had what we would call a checkered history. 
And as far as the narrative is concerned, when you look at Jacob's life, Jacob was a man, it seems, who was not quite settled in his faith in God. He was not quite settled in his confidence in God. In fact, you remember when he was running from his brother, he was actually panicking so much so, he began to promise God if God were to deliver him what he would do. He would give a tenth of all he possessed. Of course, we know God met him that night. The angel of the Lord who wrestled with him and there he changed Jacob's name from Jacob. And this is highly disputed. In fact, I was taken up by this recently by someone. But suffice it to say, God changed his name from Jacob, the supplanter, as some would say trickster, to Israel, a prince with God. So if you ask the question, what's the significance of the Lord being referred to as the God of Jacob? Perhaps it is to emphasize the point that he's the God who comes alongside us, who helps those who are struggling, who are weak in their faith. And Jacob was that kind of man, it seems. Those whose character needs to be sanctified, those whose character needs to be brought under submission to him, And as we said, from the narrative of his life, from the narrative of his relationships, it appears that Jacob was that kind of person. Jacob needed refinement. And that the Lord is characterized as the God of Jacob seems to indicate that God will stop at nothing. God will stop at nothing until he has refined the faith of his people. He will use chastisement. He will use afflictions. He'll use trials. He'll use hardships to get us at that place where he wants us to be. To bring about growth in faith, growth in godliness, growth in dependence and trust in him. And what with years of rivalry with his brother Esau, what with challenges, challenging years he had with his father, father-in-law uh, Laban, the many years he had been bereaved of his son Joseph, whom he presumed to have died. Note Genesis 47 verse 9 where he speaks of the days of the years of his life as having been few and evil. Jacob, we would say, came under the disciplining rod of God. What was God doing with Jacob all of these times? He was having these conflicts with his father-in-law. He was in conflict with Esau. His relationships seemed to be out of of sync, skewed. God was sending these difficulties in his life to transform his character. Indeed, by the time God had finished working on Jacob through years of discipline, through years of chastening, at the end of his life, Jacob, by this time an old man, a physically weak man, the word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, was bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Can you imagine that? He was a man who was always on the run, never quite settled in God, in conflicts with his with, with his, in conflict with his father-in-law, in conflict with his, with his bone brother. And he himself testified, listen, my years have been full of trouble. Few days full of trouble. And by the time God was through with him, Hebrews chapter 11, 21 says, he was worshiping, leaning on top of his staff. We see there the tenacity of faith. 
The writer of the Hebrews picks that up as a model of, the, of those who made it to the hall of faith when it came, comes to hall of fame, when it comes to faith. That's what God had done with Jacob. And so as the God of Jacob, what, why is God the God of Jacob? Because we see here God patiently and perseveringly worked in Job's life, making of him an amazing model of his powerful, transforming grace. As the God of Jacob, God was to Jacob an unfailing help in his sufferings and distresses, in his trials and adversities. And what the psalmist is therefore teaching us, beloved, is this concerning God being the God of Jacob, is that not only is he worthy, this God worthy of our hope and trust, but that those who place their hope and trust in the God of Jacob, the God who worked so marvelously in the life of Jacob, being his helper all throughout his life, working on him, refining him, this God is worthy of our trust. The psalmist is suggesting that those who place their faith and trust in this God are truly happy. They are truly happy and are in a privileged position. Such will know real fulfillment and happiness. Such will experience a truly good life. Read Jacob's final statement. Among, the, among his final statements on his deathbed, he remembers the angel of the Lord who met him and delivered him, helped him from all his troubles. That's the kind of God the psalmist says is worthy of our trust. And if you ask Jacob during those years of pain, during those years of suffering, during those years of interpersonal conflicts, Job would say, listen, I'm, I'm having it rough. <laughs> But here it was at the end of his life, he's worshipping on top of his staff. And he's remembering God who delivered him. That God is worthy of our trust. Now in further describing this helping God who is worthy of our trust, and we're not going to be able to finish this psalm this evening. But, so let me try this last little point and then I'll finish. We'll probably, probably come back to it. In further describing this helping God who is worthy of our trust and confidence, the psalmist speaks of him in the first two lines of verse 6 as the one, here it comes, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. What kind of God is this that we are to trust for help? This God, the psalmist is suggesting, the implication here, he's affirming the fact that this God is the almighty, all-powerful God, the implication being then that there is absolutely nothing, no limit as to what he's able to do, compared to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. The prophet Jeremiah said very much the same thing. He says, Ah, Lord God, you made heaven and earth, and there is nothing that is too difficult, too hard for you. And scripture has this way of continually identifying the Lord as the creator of the world. We were, we were on that last Wednesday evening. Amos challenges the people to turn to God. Why? Because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the word of God does this. The word of God constantly points to the fact that God is the creator of the world, not so much to explain the origin of the world as to emphasize the omnipotence and wisdom of Almighty God. 
It's not to tell us so much about the origin of the world, but it's to underscore the omnipotence of God, the power of God in creation testifies to the fact that there is absolutely no limit as to what he can do. This God is the God who is worthy to be trusted when it comes to our need of help. Scripture teaches, for example, that having created this world, God upholds, he sustains this world, providing for every living creature, Psalm 104. He's not the kind of God as the deist would have us understand that, yes, he may have created the world, but he's no longer concerned with it. People panic today, where is God? Where is God? God is in his place, upholding, sustaining this universe. Scripture also teaches that related to God's power as the creator of the world is his ability to use his creation to carry out his plans and purposes. Again, we saw that on Wednesday evening in our Bible study. God uses creation to effect his plans and purposes. And in the context of Psalm 146, this psalm we are studying, it therefore means that because he created all things, which would include you and me, not only are we dependent on him and hence obliged to trust him, but that he is powerful enough to help us in whatever need or challenge that confronts us. Psalm 121 verse 2 says, My help comes from the Lord. And notice what, what kind of Lord it is. It is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then, why is the Lord worthy to be trusted as our helper? Because as the God of Jacob, his repute as the helping God has been well established. And the Lord is worthy of our trust because of his power in creation. And then finally, the Lord is worthy of our trust because he's always faithful and truthful. The Lord is worthy of our trust, of our confidence. We can look to him for help because he is always faithful, is always truthful. Look at the part of verse 6, who keeps faith forever. That is to say, he is unchangingly dependable. That is to say that he's a God who always delivers on his promise, the God who never disappoints. That's the God the psalmist says is worthy of our trust. That's the, psalm, the God the psalmist says, blessed is the one whose hope is in the Lord. And the lesson this afternoon is this. That if we're truly trusting God, that trust is going to be demonstrated by a lifestyle of praise. If we're truly trusting God, then that's going to protect us from the disappointment, from disappointment in man. And if we're trusting God, we're going to know divine joy and divine favor. This, this psalm, of course, was seen in the larger context of our Lord Jesus, the faithful and true one. And it is in having him, first and foremost, as our Savior, having trusted in him, that we can begin to live this life of faith that will bring us Blessing and favor with God. For all the promises of God in him, 
that is in Christ Jesus are yes and amen to the glory of God. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.